Take your Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter 12. That's our passage today. John chapter 12. We start a a brief three-session series uh, today called The King, Palm Sunday today, and then Good Friday, and then, of course, Resurrection Sunday. We're talking about the King and what He's doing in this Holy Week. And here's the key concept for us this morning. Self-centered priorities will cause us to miss what the King is doing to miss what the king is doing. I was once involved in a a group, and for a period of time in this particular group, we were asked each day to pray this prayer. It went like this, help me, Lord, to make your dreams for me to be my dreams as well. Your dreams for me to be my dreams as well. That's what I want to focus on today. God's dreams for us, what He wants for us. And if we're really going to understand that or grasp that, we have to leave behind what I'll call self-centered priorities and dreams. Because self-centered dreams lead to self-centered choices and self-centered decisions, and all of that will cause us to miss what God is really doing right in front of us. In the events of Palm Sunday, we have an example of that truth in action. So follow with me as we pick up the reading. We're going to read from John 12, starting in verse 12. This is what it says. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on His way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet Him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as it was written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. Twice in that short passage, we have Jesus referred to as the king. The king has arrived. But as the people come out to meet him and as those who are with him are walking down that road, what are their thoughts What are their dreams or their priorities? I want to consider the groups of people who were affected on this first Palm Sunday. First of all, let's consider the apostles. Their dreams were for grandeur and glory. And they were sensing that that dream was slipping away because Jesus at this point in His life is starting to talk a lot about death. He's starting to talk a lot about departure And he recognizes, and I think the apostles would recognize, that as the attention from the people grew, as the crowds grew, so did the danger that was coming from the leaders of the Jews. And this moment, this triumphal entry, is the high point of Christ's popularity. And so the threat was plain to see for those who were looking. And at some level, the apostles were aware of it, but still they're chasing after a place of glory for themselves in what they hope will be the kingdom that will come. That attitude is demonstrated in Matthew chapter 20 by James and John and their mother. It says this, The mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of Him. What is it that you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. She's saying, Jesus, make sure that my boys have a special place when you come into power. 
Make sure that my boys are, in a sense, inside the spotlight of your glory, close enough to be seen by everyone who is you know, observing this new kingdom that's coming. Now, you've heard of pushy stage mothers before, right? But here's an extreme example. These were grown men. And she's trying to push them into the center of the kingdom, dreams of glory and grandeur. And, and you might think, well, it's just one mother, you know, that mothers are like that. But later on in the passage, when the other ten find out what was going on with James and John, it says in verse 24, and they were indignant. Why? Because they wanted the positions of grandeur and glory. Hey, that, that's something that I want for myself. These were their dreams. Well, what about the multitudes as they cried out, save, save now. That's what Hosanna means. Save us now. They saw Jesus as worthy of praise. They saw Jesus as able to save. They give to Him the traditional greeting of a conquering king, waving the palm branches and laying them down on, on, the, on the road. But they had dreams mainly of freedom and fortune. They wanted freedom from Rome. They wanted fortune from the one who's able, evidently, to do miraculous things. He's just raised Lazarus from the dead. And if you read on in our passage, you'll see that the bulk of the crowd there were those who had been affected by that very recent miracle. He's healed the sick. He's reproduced bread and fish. And they're thinking to themselves, it would be great to have a miracle worker as a king. We would never need anything. So do some of that stuff for us. Get these Romans off of our back. And later in the week, when it seems like he's not going to deliver either freedom or fortune, at least some of them change their cry. Well, what about the Pharisees? The Jewish leaders, they had dreams of position and authority. And in fact, they already had those things. That dream, in a sense, had come true for them. But they wanted to make sure that they hung on to that. They wanted to make sure that nothing slipped. You see, Jesus was a threat to their control. He was a threat to their comfort. In order to stay in the positions that they had, they need to do something about Jesus. You see, it's nothing new. Self-centered dreams have always been around, and they're still with us. Billy Graham once said this, the smallest package I ever saw is a man all wrapped up in himself. I like that. When we live like this, you see, it takes us down a way of living that God doesn't want us to go. When we live like this, all wrapped up in ourselves, we tend to keep score. We tend to tally up. We tend to examine and, and compare. What do they have that I don't have? What are they experiencing that I'm not experiencing? And when you go down that road in life, it saps your peace. It saps your satisfaction. And one of the great things about the grace of God is when you are in touch through Jesus Christ with the grace of God, it pushes away anxiety. It pushes into your life a sense of satisfaction in Christ because I am aware of God's work in me and around me. That's what we want. Each of us, like these people in this story, we need to make a choice. And the choice is, how am I going to respond when the king arrives? How am I going to respond when it's obvious that he's here? You see, self-centeredness 
will cost us. It always does. We think somehow we're getting ahead. We're getting behind. The self-centered student who doesn't study, he doesn't feel like it, he loses an education. The self-centered employee who cheats the company, hides back in the break room, is not a team player, eventually loses advancement and maybe that job. The self-centered lover for whom sex is a game and conquest loses the beauty of what these gentlemen were talking about, covenanted marriage. The self-centered sensualist who thinks life is all about the next rush, the next tingle, and nothing more loses the peace of a soul that is right with God. It always costs us to live like that. And we miss for sure what God is doing all around us. Why are we vulnerable to self-centered priorities even as the King is arriving? We're vulnerable because we find it hard to believe that God really loves us. What I mean is this. We, we come to think that it's doubtful that God loves who we really are deep down. This lack of trust in the self-sacrificial love of God for who we really are deep down shows itself in the way that we live. And the first way it shows itself is we put on an act. We begin to fake it. Now, we do this with people all the time, and we do this because often we have learned people do not accept us and love us for who we really are, so we learn to fake things to get along. We put on a mask of bravery when we're really afraid. We put on a mask of power when we're really weak. We put on a mask of, of intellect when we're really clueless. If you'd really put me to the wall, I don't know what I'm doing, but I can fake it pretty well. And people get impressed by our masks. People fall in love with our masks. And we feel for a while that we're getting along pretty nicely in life. Thank you very much. But then something happens when you live like that. And what happens is one day you begin to feel like a fake. And our lives are one big charade. And when that happens, you begin to question, well, maybe God too loves the fake me not the real me. We doubt that He loves the real person. Maybe He's fallen in love with the pretense, not the person. Here's a hint for your happiness. God has always seen through your facade, always has, always will, and He has always loved you anyway. You see, God loves the real you. Jesus died for the real you. When you ask the deepest question of life, who am I? You answer the question, I am a person loved by God, deeply loved by God. And when you say that and honestly trust it, you begin to know that I can trust God because He already loves me. Now, this doesn't mean that God will already always agree with you. And it doesn't mean that He'll always endorse your opinions or your ideas. And it doesn't mean that He's going to gloss over your sin and say, well, for you it's okay because I love the real you. No. He knows that the real you can change and grow and rise and step by step be conformed to the image of Christ day by day. But that's the process of the Christian life because you're loved by God. But sometimes we hold on to our self-centered dreams, secondly, and our self-centered priorities because we deep down don't trust that God will really do what's best for us. 
really do what's best for us. Too many of us believe that, really, I'm kind of on my own here. Nobody I can trust to really look out for the best for me, not even the Almighty. And this thought shows up. What happens is we mistakenly think that the best for us is exactly what we want for us at any moment of time. See what I'm saying? We fall into the trap of saying, well, what's best for me is something that I know and what I want. Here's another hint for happiness. Realize that the most crucial distinction you can make in life is the distinction between wants and needs. All around you, people don't make that distinction. All around you, people are confused, and they act as if everything that comes up as a want, a desire in their life, is absolutely essential. But God sees what you need. God knows everything you will always need. He sees what is essential in your life and important and what is best. And here's the message. It may be other than what you want. But since He loves you, the real you, you can trust Him for what's really best. Because when you're not sure that you can trust God for what's really best, here's the kind of thinking you fall into. You fall into the thinking that says, I have to choose between doing what pleases God and doing what pleases me. These things are a choice. They are separate. They're never going to be the same, and I want you to know that is false. That is false. The things that bring you pleasure and God pleasure can be achieved at the same time. When you seek to live in the center of God's will, for your life, when you seek the li- to live the way that He has designed you to live, it brings you joy. You experience joy, and God experiences joy at the same time. And that moment of you experiencing joy and God experiencing joy at the same time, that is the echo of paradise. That's the echo of paradise down through the ages. But when you don't trust that, when you don't trust that, you will fall prey to lesser pleasures. Sin is a lesser pleasure. Hint for happiness number three. Beware the temptation to run after lesser pleasures. They're not worthy. The choice to refuse the lesser pleasure of sin in order to experience the greater pleasure of living in that moment when my joy and God's joy is happening at the exact same time, that is what we're going for. The story is told of a kite. Now, this kite could think, and this kite could talk. And it's flying in the air, and the kite thinks and then says to itself, If only I could get rid of this string that's holding me back, then I could really be free to fly as high as I could go. That that would be great. And just that moment, the string broke. And guess what happened? Down came the kite. Kite came crashing down because what it thought was holding it back was really holding it up. And I say that to illustrate the fact that sometimes the constraints of God Sometimes the, 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 the rules, if you will, that God puts on us for what righteousness looks like feels maybe like a constraint, like it's holding us back. It's not. It is a measure of His love. We have to tr- trust that God's pleasure 
and our pleasure in Him are perfectly in harmony as we live according to the way that He has designed us. And when we do that, we will not settle for that lesser pleasure, knowing that He wants what is best for us and He knows what is best for us. So how do we step away from coming to God with a selfish agenda? How do we step away from just coming to God and seeking to manipulate Him for the priorities of self that we carry into our relationship with Him? Number one, we need to understand the importance of surrender. Surrender. We are beginning our journey through Holy Week today. We will end that journey celebrating the great resurrection of Jesus Christ. But before we get to that, we go through the Garden of Gethsemane. We go through Calvary. And Jesus saw it all coming, even as the crowds are welcoming Him on Palm Sunday. And this Thursday, Thursday of Holy Week, He will go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there He will pray in agony, recognizing that What's coming will be literally His death. And He prays, not my will, but Thy will be done. Now that prayer is central to living the Christian life. That prayer has got to be almost a daily prayer that, that we get up in the morning and say, Thy will be done. Thy will be done. It helps us to reject this call to power which will infect us and divert us from the walk that Jesus has for us. But we need to find that there's power in surrender because when I surrender to God and His will, guess what? I'm surrendering to the One who loves me through and through. I'm willing to do that. Jesus prayed that prayer, not my will, but Thy will be done in the garden as the cross was coming, as the fake trials were right there, ready to, ready to begin to happen. Struggle was on the door, at the door, and it points out to me that there will be times when it doesn't seem to make human sense to pray, Thy will be done. But that's when trust matters most of all. Trust enough to surrender, to find God's priorities and God's will for us. And secondly, if we're going to step away from our selfish agendas, even in our relationship with Jesus, we need to approach life with an assumption, and that is an assumption that God has an assignment for me. God has an assignment for me, and that assignment is pleasing to Him, and it's perfect for me because He's the one who's created it. It may not be an easy assignment, but it will be a rewarding assignment. It will be an assignment that brings blessing and spreads blessing to others. And there's nothing better in life than fulfilling that assignment. There's no joy like feeling that the fact that God is using me on an assignment for His glory. It'll affect every aspect of your life. It'll change who you are at work. It'll change who you are at home. It'll change what you do with your spare time because God's assignment starts with your character, your willingness to allow Him to remake you from the inside out. It's going to alter your habits. It'll redirect your relationships. In short, God's assignment for you will cause you to be a continually changing person. But that's the assignment. But I want you to know this. God's assignment for you is resistible. It's refusable. And the refusing comes when we cling 
more tightly to our own dreams than to what God has. Point three, if we're really going to set aside our selfish agendas in our walk with Jesus, resist the temptation to step in and take control when times get tough or when you don't understand. When things go wrong or you don't understand what's happening, how do you react to that? Many of us, long-term Christians, many of us still, what we do is, well, that's my signal to step in and take over. But in the hard times, we need to listen more. We need to pray more. We need to wait more. We need to trust more that God's timetable is a perfect timetable, that God's plan is the perfect plan. Sure, call out to God the desires of your heart. Yes, plead with God the prayers for what you want to have happen in the midst of the difficulty. He said to us, you have not because you ask not. So ask, right? But always ask with that attitude of surrender that says, but I know you know best. But I know your will is best, and and that's what I want. I want what's best. The crowds in this story, they saw a situation in which they lived that they didn't want. The Romans were in charge. The nation was defeated. Taxes were high. Quality of life is low. And so maybe what we need to do is take control a little. Maybe what we need to do is force the hand of this guy who works miracles. Maybe we need to greet him in such a way that it's very plain for everybody to see that we are promoting him to king. And then if we do that, maybe he will just start acting like the king we want him to be. Aren't you glad the king understood that he was also the sacrifice and also the savior? Aren't you glad that he didn't give in to the agenda of the crowd? to save in the way that they thought He should be saving them because God's plan was better. Palm Sunday reminds us that even when we are face to face with the King, it's possible to miss the King's blessing. So let's go back to that prayer of that group that I was with for six weeks or whatever it was. God, help your dreams for me to be my dreams as well. It's a daily prayer that will change your life. You'll see things that need to come into your life and then doors that need to be opened and push things out of your life. You'll see that. But maybe the dream that God has for you is to enter your life for the first time. Maybe the dream that God has for you is that you find the forgiveness that Jesus earned for you on the cross because that's where it all begins. That's where this journey starts. Jesus went to the cross and took our guilt there paid the price of our sin there. And while He was hanging on the cross, He said, it is finished. And God's desire for us, all of us, is that you know you are forgiven. That you know that you have hope in this life and beyond this life. That you know the guilt of your sin has been washed away. And you are clean to the gaze of God. Do you know that? If you honestly say, I'm not sure that I know that, the Holy Spirit is nudging you saying, you can know that as you turn to Him by faith. And maybe there's somebody here who needs to do that right now. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Because I'm going to give you an opportunity 
If that's what you know you need to do, to say yes to the forgiveness of Jesus. You do it by faith, okay? By faith, by believing in what Jesus has done for you. But that faith is expressed in a prayer. And I'm going to help you pray. You simply say this. Maybe you're watching at home, around your dining room table, or in your living room. You too can pray this prayer. You pray, Lord Jesus, I need you. I believe you died on the cross and paid the price of my sin. I believe you rose again. And I believe that you can forgive me today. And I can have new life. Lord, that's what I want. Make me your child this morning. I want to be born again. And Lord Jesus, I know if we pray that prayer in faith, that you are responding to that maybe just one individual in the sound of my voice who's saying yes to forgiveness and hope. And so I thank you for that. I know you would wish that all of us would pray that prayer, not saying magic words, but expressing a true faith and a desire to be saved. Thank you, Lord, in advance for the life that you have for us. Help us to dream your dreams. And for those who are saying yes to you for the first time, may they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that something has happened today, that they are new in the family of God. We pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen.